0: The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.
1: This podcast is sponsored by Club W, the revolutionary new wine club that brings delicious bottles of wine right to your door. Join the club and take 50% off your first order by going to clubw.com slash happened today. So That Happened is also sponsored by MileIQ, the only mileage tracker app that detects, logs, and calculates your miles for you, ensuring that every mile is accounted for and no dollar is lost. Take MileIQ for a free 40-drive trial today by texting HAPPENED to 31996. That's HAPPENED to 31996. This podcast contains explicit language. So That Happened. This week, the intensity of the 2016 campaign season ratcheted up another 100 notches or so. On the Democratic side, a surprise win in Michigan from Bernie Sanders flummoxed the pollsters, boosted the Vermont senators' chances, and put the Clinton campaign back into arrears. But as life bloomed anew for Sanders, on the Republican side, Florida Senator Marco Rubio looked to be headed to his end, with only one debate left to alter his fortunes in Florida. Full coverage of these races are on the way. Meanwhile, the Flint water crisis has shown a despairing light on what life is like in poorer cities, as well as the infrastructural problems that need fixing all across the nation. But now that the Michigan primary is over and Flint is no longer a campaign talking point, are we poised to forget about our nation's lead pipe problem just as attention is cresting? Finally, the biggest threat to reproductive freedoms in two decades is currently before the Supreme Court. And it comes in the form of some restrictions on abortion providers that have long ventured over the border of absurdity into pure mountain-grown disingenuousness. We'll explain what's happening and why. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Samantha Lockman, Tyler Times, Travis Waldron, and Lauren Weber. We'll also ask ourselves how we can enjoy the NCAA basketball tournament when the NCAA itself is a corrupt and exploitative cartel. But here's what happened first. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of So That Happened, the weekly podcast chronicle of the garbage universe we have found ourselves living in against our will and wishes. I'm Jason Lincolns, the editor of Eat the Press. I am joined by two of my lovely and esteemed Huffington Post colleagues today. Uh, To my left is Arthur Delaney. Hi. And to, I guess to my right, circumference-wise, we're at a round table. So across the round (laughs) table from me is... Our dear friend, Lauren Weber. Hi, hi. Hey, guys. So we have just watched the most recent GOP debate. It was served up to us on a Thursday. And I have to say, man, Jeb Bush belonged on that stage tonight because what was the debate? It was low
2: energy. I have two words (laughs) for Thursday night's GOP debate. Boring. Super boring.
1: (laughs) Super boring. So subdued.
3: So subdued. We
1: are used to these debates hitting pyrotechnic heights, mainly due to the fact that Donald Trump is such a meth spectacle of nonsense most of the time. And because in recent debates, his rivals, uh, well, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, have really done their best to try to throw... Sticks and stones at him, but tonight, none of that.
2: No, it was so subdued, and I think Donald Trump was the the ringleader of the subdued dudes. Uh, even when he was justifying political violence at his rallies, yes, that yes. was a
1: that was a fun, even then that was a fun moment, and perhaps it is maybe the reason why Donald Trump chose to try to be. Uh, I hesitate to use this word, statesman like esque. I think uh. he's
3: he's gunning for the general. It's his it's his pivot to the middle.
1: Right off the top tonight in his opening statement, he essentially uh made his like pleading to the GOP establishment to learn to love him a little bit. Meanwhile, people are getting beaten at his rallies and his own campaign manager, uh, Corey Lewandowski, who is a, uh, obviously a gem of a human being, <laughs> uh, assaulted uh, Breitbart reporter Michelle Fields. Uh, and then the campaign went into like a weird period. It's been weird for everybody. The, the Breitbart as you might expect, didn't know what to do about it because they've been, like, sucking Trump's teeth for
2: I don't know how long. They might actually, I mean, there are reports that he pays them.
1: Right. So... the small uh, problems. They sort of hung her out to dry for a day before offering up some of a nominal defense. The Trump campaign is denying this happened. Ben Terrace of the Washington Post was there and witnessed it. Uh, Michelle Fields tweeted her bruises today. Uh, it's just, it's just, it's a
3: party. It's, it's a party mess. here on a Thursday. And I
1: think, I think that the fact that Trump was so subdued tonight and so unwilling to go into his like full on like Voltron rant mode is a tacit admission that yeah, his campaigns have gotten out of hand.
2: And he, when he was asked about this directly, not the campaign manager violence against reporters, but just the general violence at his rallies, he said, you know, it's bad. You know, I don't, I don't like violence. But then he said, we have some protesters who are bad dudes. They had done bad things. They are swinging. They are really dangerous. We had a couple big, strong, powerful guys doing damage to people. And they're going to be taken out. I'll be honest.
3: He just said, you know, people are angry. So violence happens. Donald Trump is a
1: big liar. Yeah, it's a fucking lie. And the guys who are taking swings are randos among his supporters who are just taking swings at protesters who've now gone there to silently protest. Really what Donald Trump means by protester is black guy standing at my rally. That's really what he means. And of course, everyone who's racist tends to depict black people as super powerful, more powerful, superhuman than they, than they are that need to be put down by force. And so that's, it's all knit up in the fucking caustic racism of the moment. But Beyond all that, and boy, that's a fucking large thing to get beyond.
3: I was gonna say that's a bit that's a bit heavy. There, we got it.
1: Was it was a night where uh, this was in Marco Rubio's home state, uh, and Marco Rubio has been on the attack in recent weeks, and he's been encouraged to go on the attack in recent weeks, and tonight he just declined to fight. I well, feel not, like
3: tonight, tonight Marco Rubio just rolled over and died. Yep. That's kinda of how I take tonight's debate. I, I, think,
2: I think that's true. Before the debate, he had toned it down. He said he regretted making fun of Donald Trump's penis size and that it embarrassed his children. I, so it wasn't like we necessarily knew he was going to come out and be full of rage. A lot of people think he's about to drop out and might do so before next week's election.
3: I just feel like when you were rebutting the fact that the math is not, is not in your favor with a story about an old man who was hospitalized and has a sign backing you up at an early polling Literally station, a thing that was said tonight on the debate stage. Then, then I just, it, life is not going well for you. That's just, it's just time, it's time to retire and sit with that old man and say, please, sir, do not injure yourself on my accord <laughs> since I'm
1: not gonna win. The best part of that is that Marco Rubio doesn't actually have first-hand knowledge of this random man who's yes. apparently been It's a story sick, for his wife. And like, sitting outside a polling place with the Marco Rubio sign. It's something his wife told him, and I'd be still like, I need to verify. I love you, but I'm going to verify that because I got to get out of this race. It seemed to me like tonight, Rubio just sort of recognized that his day was done That the whole Marvel team up of Cruz, Kasich, and him to take down Donald Trump wasn't going to happen. And it seemed like he wanted to go out with just a little bit of class class and dignity.
3: He had some nice lines. I mean, there were a couple good punches, I thought. Right. He said,
2: uh, I don't... It's not about being politically correct. It's just about being correct, Donald.
3: Yeah, there was. Wait, some... that's a good line because that's a line that sure. they say yeah, politically nice correct. Political correct, quote unquote, is a Fox News mantra that's played. You know, anti political correctness, and that's I think that's a good clarification of that of that policy, so to speak.
1: The The key moment for me came when they're on t- t- Social Security. And Donald Trump, given the opportunity to explain how it was he was going to make Social Security solvent, cited waste, fraud, and abuse. And then uh, Dana Bash uh, challenged him on that, and he came back with a really rambling answer about how America is the world's policeman, and we don't get anything out of our foreign aid, and we're going to bring home wealth. Uh, it was the bill of goods. It was a bill of goods being sold to people, and Ruby had the chance to be like, "That's what I'm talking about when I say you're a con artist." Right. But he didn't. He, instead, he was like graceful and gravitas, and so the people of Florida got to see their senator endorse raising the Social Security age, while Donald Trump <laughs> <Yeah>. got <laughs> got away with basically saying, "I promise you will win." song and social security will be (laughs) saved through magic and america will be
3: great again that was
1: a moment where just
3: believe in me just believe in me
2: dana bash would have benefited from some infographics like chris wallace had used in the previous debate which really stopped trump you know caused caused there to be a moment of recognition that he had just lied fantastically and and instead donald trump was able to just you know spout this nonsense about we were the world's policemen huh Thought we were talking about social security. Yeah, it yeah, it was it was
1: kind of ridiculous. Ted Cruz did uh did was a little bit more firm with Donald Trump, but it was still very marquees of Queensbury rules tonight. We were saying we were saying earlier that this was a rare occasion where John where John Kasich seemed to be at the level the debate was at. If for not once. if
3: not above. He was like high energy, especially when we got to A couple places in the debate, he was he was more energetic than most of the people on the stage. Yeah, yeah, he
2: fit right in there. And when Hugh Hewitt asked him, John, why are you here? You have no chance whatsoever. He was fired up. He said, Well, you never know what might happen tomorrow, which is true. What if the other three guys all have heart attacks? What
3: if okay, there's okay, Arthur?
1: Gee, what if there's a oh, solar saying- player that-, <laughs> that wipes out the bees?
2: That's what I'm saying. It could happen. <laughs> that only John Kasich could get us out of that. That's his strategy. What you know? What if
1: everyone gets hit by a meteor? Well, he does. He does so love governing that John Kasich. He's just like, I want to govern some stuff. Just give me some people in a room. We'll govern some shit.
2: You know? John, you already have a
1: state, and he's
3: you know he's been he's been to Washington and he's 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 done it. Now but that I, line
2: is true. He was a, a chairman of the budget committee at a time when committees were more powerful than they are today.
3: Look, I agree. I just I feel like at this point of watching all these GOP debates, I could recite half the lines these guys are going to say on the stage.
2: Yes, it was very familiar, and, and without the fireworks that made it a real uh, a really real original dull, a real and you know
3: i kind of miss the ben carson word salad yeah. I,
2: I do
1: too there I wasn't miss,
3: there wasn't a bunch of words that didn't make sense strung together all I we mi- got
1: was a ted snooze i think <laughs> that i think that uh uh who was it that said Sorry. who was it that said that uh, america was not a planet tonight it was marco rubio on the um on the question about global warming he said oh, yeah no, america was is not a planet and i was like if Ben Carson was president, he would definitely make America a planet, no doubt about that. You know, tonight they downplayed the talk of a brokered convention, and I think probably they had to because you can't really go up on the debate stage and say, regardless of what we're going to do in the next few primaries, we have a plan to snatch it out of the hands of the person who's leading in the polls. Everyone was kind of downplaying it. Donald Trump didn't didn't get feisty about it. He said, oh... Whoever's leading in delegates, if we don't have a majority, should win. He was wrong when he said that there was, like, a random number no. you had to hit to win the nomination. It's not just, it's, like,
3: a lottery. Like, oh, you hit this number. You've won the Republican yeah. nomination. The number
1: is literally <laughs> 50% plus one. This is how That's elections work. That's kind of how math work.
3: works, but, um, but that seemed to be a fuzzy concept for everybody But Kasich,
1: Kasich still does have a role to play in the whole broker connection c- convention scenario because if he wins Ohio— that keeps Trump from making big gains, and Cruz is only, like you said tonight, 100 delegates behind. If Rubio dropped out of the race, I think I read somewhere that he sends 12 times as many of his supporters to Cruz as he does to Trump. So there's a chance that— it's a huge bomb. Yeah. It, 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 there's a chance that maybe we are going to get, if it's just a Cruz-Trump uh, straight-up match— a real race for the delegate nomination, but I still think
3: Kasich has a role to play in determining who wins. This is what a world we live in, in which it's a choice between Donald Trump and Ted Cruz. Can I just say,
1: like, the only reason that Ted Cruz doesn't right now have a swarm of support from his colleagues in the House and Senate is because he has been in his brief career as a senator an
3: inveterate dick to all of them. I love the Lindsey Graham quote. What was it? It was if someone killed Ted Cruz in the Senate and the trial was in the Senate they'd be acquitted. He would be acquitted.
2: <laughs> he shut down the government, man. Yes. It's the one It's the one essential fact about his Senate career. On two occasions, he came into the Senate
1: just looking for someone to sort of like second the nomination and none of his colleagues would, would do it. Would raise their hands. And I'm just like, maybe, maybe you didn't have to be quite such an asshole to everyone, Ted Cruz. Like, if you had just been half the asshole you were, you might actually have the party willing to ally behind you. They seem to be more—the th- the, the ice seems to be thawing, mainly because people are waking up to the idea that Donald Trump is a worse alternative. But, man, it has taken a long
2: time for that to happen. Yeah. It, it took uh, basically Hitler— yeah. For these guys to warm up to Ted Cruz.
1: Well, yeah.
3: and the failure of every other viable candidate. Yeah. I mean this, this is only we're only warming up to Cruz because Rubio appears to be down and out.
1: All right. Well, by you know, Arthur having now taken us to the Godwin's Law place, uh, we will now uh,
2: God- Godwin's Law is broken right now. <laughs> okay. It's unfortunate that we've all had so much time with Godwin's Law that at a moment when you really need a Hitler comparison, everyone is a, a numb to it. Uh yeah, well we should have gone back and killed baby Hitler, as
3: everyone. Oh dear, let's not start says. this.
2: All right, uh,
1: guys, thanks. This is the, we're not going to have a debate next week, and I'm going to declare that a good thing. Uh, but I will miss this, and uh, we'll be right back. Hey everybody, if you're anything like me, then you know exactly what you like and how you like it, except. For when I'm in the wine aisle, tannins and terroirs don't mean anything to me because I'm not some sort of fancy pants professional sommelier. I make a good effort wandering through the grocery aisle trying to pick something from the wine rack, but if I'm being honest, I'm often more drawn to a flashy label than I am drawing on real knowledge, which means most of the time I'm flying blind, making guesses, and probably missing out on a lot of wines I'd probably love. Well, with Club W, the guessing game is over. Club W is a revolutionary new wine club that sends you wine directly to your door. Not only does Club W send you wine, they send you wine that you'll love drinking. So if you've ever spent any time wandering the wine aisle at the grocery store, feeling lonely and afraid, Club W is here to help. Club W starts with a simple six-question quiz to help you define your palate so that every bottle you receive is perfectly tailored to your tastes. Club W is leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. They work directly with vineyards to cut out the middlemen, and that saves you money. Club W even offers a no-risk guarantee that you'll love what they send you. If you aren't happy with a bottle, you get your money back. And now for the good part. Right now, Club W is offering our listeners 50% off their first order when they go to clubw.com happened. So don't ever come home to a wine-free house again. Just go to clubw.com happened and get 50% off your first order today. Everybody, we're back. We've been talking a lot about the Republicans and their debate and their struggles, uh, but there's another primary happening on the Democratic side, and this week there was a huge, huge, huge upset in Michigan. So we're going to talk about that. Joining me right now to talk about that, Samantha Lockman, Zach Carter. Hey guys. Hi. Hi. So uh, I think that they're calling the Michigan's the Michigan primary on the Democratic side. Maybe the biggest polling cock-up in American history, or one of them. Pretty yeah. close.
4: There were some polls. Uh, one poll I, I think showed Clinton uh, up by thirty points. Most somewhere between ten and twenty. Right. Um,
1: didn't happen. No. Didn't happen. Uh, she did not. She did not turn out the vote in Detroit, most specifically. She really didn't. She for all the investment she's made in Flint, she didn't do that great in Genesee County. And it's a huge win for for Bernie, at least in the sense that, you know, we tend in the media to talk about people winning states is a big deal as opposed to people winning delegates, where on the night, Clinton still crushed him in the delegate
5: count. But but put this race in context for us right now. Well, he won by a point in Michigan, right? Like one or two. Yeah, but I think considering that no one was expecting that at all, it was huge. And also, Michigan has a healthy number of delegates. Like, that was a lot of delegates for him that he won, too. That's true. And it showed, I mean... It showed that his message on trade and manufacturing, outsourcing, all that stuff was, like, legitimately a huge thing for voters there and, and really pr- put him over the top.
4: He also still lost black voters two to one. Yeah. But he had been losing black voters four to one. More than <laughs> so, <that.
1: laughs>
4: so he's actually doing better with black voters. Yeah. And I think that's the, particularly in a state like... Like Michigan, that demonstrates that, you know, black voters are not a monolithic group across the country. A lot of black voters are voting on trade policy more than anything else, uh, particularly in the upper Midwest. So I-, I think that was that was a big deal. And with Sanders, it seems to me like each time we have a primary weekend, he does just well enough to not have to like concede the election. The yeah, next day. he
5: doesn't have to bow out.
4: He keeps not getting completely knocked down. And for a long shot candidacy, that's maybe all you can ask. But he's got a really serious uphill climb next week. He's, he's survived for a week, but on, on Tuesday the 15th, uh, he's facing a lot of states where he is trailing to Hillary Clinton.
5: And those are huge states. Are Ill- so on Tuesday, it's Illinois and Ohio, Florida... North Carolina, Missouri, and those are the same. I mean, Illinois and Ohio; those are the the states that are like big deal general election states. In the same way that Michigan is, where where it'll be interesting to see what
1: well, happens. Well, okay, but all right. So she has a projected lead in Illinois and Ohio, but I'm looking at those states too, and I'm seeing well rust belt states, yeah. well manufacturing states, well yeah. open primary states. Uh, what's
5: the, do we really know that her her polling lead is real? We really don't. I think that's what the Clinton campaign might be freaking out about with those states because of what happened in Michigan.
3: And I think
4: in a best case scenario for Bernie Sanders, you maybe see three upsets upsets for him. Right, you would see him win Illinois and Ohio and Missouri. Yeah. But remember, all of these states, particularly in a Democratic primary. Have cities with very high black populations. So St. Louis is the biggest city in Missouri. Chicago, very much bigger city than than, than Detroit in Illinois. And then Ohio, you know, m- most of its urban cities have have very significant black populations. The, it was the black vote and the turnout of the black vote in 2012 that that turned that state for for Barack Obama. Cleveland, not, Columbus. Yeah, not not the white working class vote that people thought uh, was was going to do it. So I still think Sanders has a pretty serious challenge on his hands to get through the next week, and there are so many delegates yeah, at stake. So many. If he doesn't. Win a few states, uh, you know, he he may be forced to. to the math just just is not going to work.
5: And Florida that day is 246 delegates, which is the most delegates um, after Texas, which already she already won. So, okay,
1: I don't go in for a whole lot of like, wow, she didn't win a uh, blue state in the primary. Then, yeah, will she win in the general? Well, I mean, she probably will. But <laughs> uh, I do see two potential. I do see two real cracks in her skein right now. The first thing is that she needs to have a message in these manufacturing states because Donald Trump almost certainly does and it would be down to her to either convince or convince people that she's better on those issues than Trump is yeah or that Trump is
5: fucking insane. Trump <laughs> is a better at this point. The latter is he makes all his stuff in China. Like, how much does he really care about American workers? Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah. I think that stuff. I
1: think that stuff maybe can can, can stick uh, outside of Trump's diehards. But the other thing that really bothers me: nineteen percent. She went nineteen percent of people under thirty in Michigan, and yeah. we've seen again and again and again. She's not polling at all well with
5: younger with, voters. With younger voters, is that something you turn around? You, yeah, she needs to to make younger voters, if she is the Democratic nominee going into the general, be enthusiastic about her. Because otherwise, if they don't vote, Democrats are screwed. Like, isn't that just the case? So I, mean, I, I don't know if I'm wrong about that.
4: To my mind, I mean, I don't I don't see how Donald Trump. Um, takes any of the swing states with significant Latino populations. I just don't see it happening. Fine, but I do But I do. See, but he doesn't need to to win the election. He just needs to flip a lot of the Rust Belt red. And I think if if people don't trust Hillary Clinton on trade issues and they vote on those things, she struggles
1: I, in Ohio and Pennsylvania. You know,
4: she just doesn't do. As, she is not as good at talking about economic issues in general as either Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders. And I hate to I hate to say that that Donald Trump is better at something than another human being, but he is actually better at talking about economic anxiety than Hillary Clinton is. And I think that I still think she's going to win Michigan in the general election, but I think the real risk for for Democrats is that she doesn't. And and that's that's what I think strategists are focusing on right now Mm -hmm. is making sure she can figure out a way to hold on to at least one or two of those states in the Rust Belt, because if she just wins one of them, there's no way he gets the electoral college map. Uh, right, so, so that he can actually take the presidency.
1: Well, she's going to get a little bit of cover from Republicans over the next week who will be pounding him in Ohio in a desperate <laughs> hope to send that to John
4: Kasich. <laughs> Hopeless. He's yeah. going to be the nominee, guys. Just just live with it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that's the Democrats. We'll be back next week with more on the Democrats after they <laughs> live through their own Tuesday primary. Sam, Zach, thanks for being part of this. Everyone, here we are in the middle of March. Know what's right around the corner? The NCAA men's basketball tournament, right? Well, okay, it is, but don't get distracted. Lurking not too far down the calendar is April fifteenth, tax time. And for the millions of Americans whose job involves driving, it means it's time to break out all of your mileage records from the past year to get that hard-earned tax deduction. And how are you keeping those records, by the way? Post-it notes? A written journal? Are you recalling it all from memory? Well, let's make this year the last year you do that by getting the MileIQ tracker app for your smartphone today. MileIQ is the solution you've been looking for. MileIQ is the number one mileage tracker app and it's trusted by millions of Americans. MileIQ is the only mileage tracker that detects, logs, and calculates your drives for you automatically. No more scribbles on notes, no more guesswork at the end of a long day. MileIQ is easy to use and it keeps all of your drives securely stored in the cloud. If you drive for work and you're not counting every single mile, then you're burning money every time you take a drive. In fact, the average MileIQ user logs $547 a month in drives. MileIQ does all the work for you. You just install it on your phone and it runs in the background, recording your trips. It's your calculator and your memory, and it's easy interface is a breeze to use, letting you focus on what's important. MileIQ is one of the few apps in the App Store that actually makes you money. It's no wonder that many people use MyIQ, and it's not a surprise that the app has earned a ton of five-star ratings in both the Google Play and iTunes App Stores. In fact, the folks at MileIQ are so confident you'll join them that they're making a special offer just for you. Just text HAPPENED to 31996, and you can start a 40-drive free trial. And if you create an account this week, you'll get 20% off an annual plan. So, stop wasting time manually tracking your miles and stop losing money you should be claiming. Take MileIQ out for a free 40 drive trial and take 20% off an annual plan by texting happened to 31996. That's happened to 31996. Standard messaging and data rates apply. And we're back. You know, there's a saying about lead pipes, can't live with them, can't rip them out of the ground for free or by magic. Flint, Michigan, and the water crisis that's taking place there has put lead pipes in the spotlight again, but what happens when the news story grows cold and we forget all about the lead pipes? Today, we're going to talk about this with Huffington Post reporter Arthur Delaney, who's been to Congress to talk to people about this. Hello. And... Introducing, for the first time in this podcast, Huffington Post reporter Tyler Tynes, who uh, is familiar with this subject, uh, especially in Newark, New Jersey. So let's get into it. Uh, Lead pipes, there's been a call to do more to rid
2: this country of lead pipes and the infrastructure, but this is not something that's easily done. Well, has there been a call? It's been all about Flint, which I think is totally justified because it's incredible... What happened there with the you know nearly willful poisoning of a a large city, but I, I feel like the Flint story now that the Democrats are done with their Michigan primary might lose some of the attention it had been getting, and I don't see a pivot to the broader problem of lead pipes. Even though this is literally poison we're using to to uh, you know move water into our houses.
1: So what's Congress going to be doing about
2: this? Well, I went there and tried asking some of them, since in the Senate they're working on um, some Flint legislation. And there's also some other stuff in the works that attacks the problem of lead pipes more broadly. And I asked uh, a senator behind that, uh, Ben Cardin of Maryland, a Democrat, why he doesn't think the broader problem is getting more attention. And this is what he said.
6: The reason is they're out of sight, out of mind. People don't know they're there. That's the reason. People knew that there were lead pipes in our in our uh, underneath our grounds if they knew that that there's a potential risk to their children they would have demanded action but unlike roads which you see every day and you go over potholes you don't see that with the water infrastructure
2: so the pipes are
1: underground and easily forgotten but when this problem crops up it really does affect the community and it sticks with the people in that community Tyler tell us about uh, Newark New Jersey
7: So for Newark, it's like a lot of urban environments that have these lead pipes. You know, lead pipes, were they're not new to the United States. They were put in, I mean, mainly before 86, but even prior to that, some cities have had, like, a plethora of lead pipes in their system since, like, around the 80s. But for a place like Newark, who almost all of their buildings are extremely old, for the school system, 30 of these buildings that um, got—that had high elevated levels of lead in their schools— they were all the oldest, some of the oldest buildings in the city. So the problem with with, new, with the Newark school system, I think specifically, is that they do annual elevated lead tests for their water system, right? They do these tests in December, and then... It's March, so you haven't detected lead in in pipes for kids in public schools for three months. It needs to be a more a more rapid process and response. but the other problem is that it's not just okay, we clean this up, we fix the water, uh, everybody can go back to their normal lives. No, there's still lead pipes in the infrastructure of thirty major schools, and that's just the ones we know about
2: wait so what tell us first of all what happened in newark did they <laughs> they uh they discovered they had high lead levels in the last week.
7: Yeah, the State Department of Environmental Protection in New Jersey and and, in linking with the Newark public school system found elevated levels of lead and discoloration of water at 30 public schools in Newark, New Jersey.
1: So we're, we're back on to perhaps another Flint flare up.
7: But it's not, it's not the same thing as Flint because Flint's entire water supply was tainted, was, was, was tainted. whereas it's just the water supply that goes to the school. You know, state officials have already and city officials both said that it's not the water supply for the city. A lot of families, however, being in this era of Flint want to make sure that they can still drink their water. So there's this fear and this apprehension that parents are going to have. But. It seems as though the New Jersey system, the DEP, and the city officials are doing enough to be transparent right now, compared to Flint, when no one was transparent.
2: In either city, they don't necessarily know where the lead pipes or even the lead fixtures are.
1: Yeah, that's crazy. That's crazy to me. Because
2: they were put down many decades ago. Yeah, and have been largely forgotten. forgotten. So, incredibly, Tyler was pointing out that this was a test that had been done in December for the amount of lead in the water and it's now three months on march and so in the intervening time probably for many months before they tested the water kids were drinking it
7: right at least but the problem if if there's one one real problem i mean not to say elevated lead and discoloration isn't a thing the why hasn't school been closed at all or even delayed to the point that these kids might not need to go to school while someone figures out what's going on with the water at least this week. Why do kids what still do they go to school instead? Instead. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.
4: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods,
7: The DEP in the city put out a joint statement. The mayor spoke and they've been delivering water pallets to each school that's affected. So that helps as far as lunch and everything. But the real question is, if an eight year old goes and doesn't really understand the complexity of the situation of the water fountain. and goes to the water fountain, like that can still easily happen as much as you bringing in water pallets. Why didn't you cancel school? Why didn't you delay school? Why didn't you give parents an ample amount of time to get a free health care check uh, or a blood, level, a blood lead test check at a local hospital? That kids are still going to school with discolored water. That, I think that's an issue.
2: This is national news. You asked Senator Cory Booker about it, who represents New Jersey. What did he say?
7: You know, I don't know how in tune Cory still is with Newark, even though that was his home base. But he was concerned. He said that you know his staff would monitor the situation. You know, as evidenced by the public health crisis in Flint, lead in our drinking water is a national issue. So it's great to hear a senator who came out of here, who was the mayor, was a councilman in Newark, to say these things. But we kind of need public officials to get out of the habit of saying these things and getting on the ground to helping these communities. So... I guess in the coming week or so, we'll see if Cory Booker gets to the ground. The same with Congressman uh, Donald Payne, who represents that area and was born in Newark. He said similarly because he went with the Congressional Black Caucus to Flint the other week. And he said, you know, while the state's Department of Environmental uh, Protection has indicated that the water system poses no health risk to our students, the situation underscores the need for action to fix or replace lead-contaminated water pipes that threaten the city's safety.
2: That's an awfully confusing statement. I thought it did pose a risk. (laughs) I thought that was the whole Point of, yeah, of you making a statement right science now. Science has
1: decided on what <laughs> what lead poisoning does to somebody. Are there any uh, 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 public policy models that can be followed to get the lead pipes out of the ground? To do all the part you do yeah. before you send the guy out with a pickaxe to dig at the ground and pull a pipe well, out? Well,
2: we we have a federal regulation under the Safe Drinking Water Act that says a public water system's got to dig out like seven percent of their lead pipes. <laughs> If okay, they, so
1: you have a mandate now, and there's an end result where
2: the pipes out.
1: Where does the money come from to get it out, and how does the public policy sphere work?
2: Is there a successful? Well, that's model? part of the question. Like the the Flint legislation they're working on would help Michigan borrow money in order to do this work because it'd be really expensive. And I think when public water systems generally do this, like when they did it in Washington D.C. Many years ago, it just goes into your water bill.
1: <laughs> Great,
2: like the people so you're who are
1: You're paying for your own. You're well, paying you don't. For the right to not be people prison. don't realize
2: that they're already paying. F- you know, you, you paid for these pipes, and uh, or, that's true. And the, the, the since they were put down so long ago, actually, the cost of them isn't really reflected. But getting new pipes sure will be. And utilities, if they have to do that, they'll be happy to let their customers know why.
1: So. I feel like Flint has become kind of a watchword for this issue. And if and if uh, what's happening in Newark is happening and has taken national attention, surely it's drafting a little bit on Flint. So where do we, how is it going to come to pass that we forget this issue?
7: We'll probably forget it the same way with that we didn't even know it was happening before Flint even occurred. It's the fact that we have lead pipes and infrastructures for every, probably every urban city in the United States of America. Like there are lead pipes that are still here. So the first thing is to dig them up get rid of the lead pipes, and then you can kind of start to talk about how to make the water a little bit safer. At least you take Flint as a reference for how to not, I guess, tangibly not treat proper water, and then you you get to that point. But it's still the lead pipes that still have to come up.
2: Yeah, the, it'll always be a problem. I asked Senator Gary Peters of Michigan, a Democrat who's been one of the lead people on the Flint-related legislation, like, is this gonna... Oh, you know, what about doing something more broadly? He basically acknowledged that the thing they're doing in response to Flint doesn't get at the bo- the broader problem.
5: I think we have to have that discussion longer term. Absolutely, that we need to continue to be focused on
2: water infrastructure. That some of that's beyond the scope of what we're doing right now. Uh, but that's definitely
4: something that will, hopefully will be part of a broader discussion.
2: So as to what uh, what's going to happen? You know, when are we going to stop talking about Flint? I interviewed. Uh, Scott Knowles, who's a, a professor of history at uh, Drexel University, and he said usually you get a year in which reporters can write stories about a disaster and what will be done. But he said and the, then it fades. It fades, and then and then after a year, it's sort of out of the news. And that's one timeline to follow. But another is the regulatory timeline, and he pointed to disasters like nine eleven like the Exxon Valdez oil spill and the Deepwater Horizon spill in the Gulf of Mexico as examples where reforms came into effect long after people stopped paying attention.
1: It is, I can say, it is a little bit like a war movie. We show up, watch the explosions happen, and maybe we watch the resolution, but then we all bug out of town when it times to knit the fabric of this shit back together. I can tell you that when Deepwater Horizon happened, I was on that story all the time, mainly covering the way BP and their allies down in the region were essentially essentially bullying reporters like Corey Lewandowski. And, <laughs> and, uh, and, and yeah, I got a lot of traction out of that. But, yeah, you're right. A year afterwards, I had, I had moved on to other things and missed whatever came next.
7: I think the other thing, too, is that when we look at a situation like Flint, even though it reminds us that there are so many lead pipes and infrastructures in the United States, the one thing that you, can, that you won't take away from the situation is that in a city like Flint that was 58 percent black, in an urban hub, in an embattled uh, you know, automotive town that was Buick City once upon a time, people are forever going to be afraid that their government— did them dirty, you know, like you're not going to get away from that. Parents are going to be afraid to forever use water. Parents are going to be scared about what's going to happen to their kids like 10 years down the line about if their kids are going to be the same. There are parents we've talked to on the ground in Flint who say as soon as the situations happen and they stop using the water, their kids have become different. So the one thing is the psychological effect that a government betrayal of of an urban environment has on the fact that 100,000 people are going to forever remember They didn't have clean water.
2: Yeah, that makes it kind of disconcerting that the timeline for like news stories seems to go away after a while. But what uh, Professor Knowles was saying is he he thinks uh, the thing to keep an eye on, if you can, is the regulatory reaction. And hopefully something will change with regard to our our national policy of using lead pipes for water.
1: I have to say to what Tyler was just saying, when I hear about lead pipes, I think of Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Flint, now Newark obviously there's a very common thread running through this and I'm wondering does does, does lead pipe poisoning happen to rich white people in America?
7: I don't think it does. Yeah,
1: that's but, my impression, too. I
7: mean, my impression, I mean, the, the one thing that 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 politicians have consistently uttered and consistently used for the entirety of Flint when it made its way to the Hill is that this situation wouldn't happen in Dearborn. This sure. situation wouldn't happen in Auburn a rich, Hills. white, affluent yeah. community. You know, Hillary Clinton said that uh, at the end of January or the beginning of February, whatever Democratic debate that was, we had about 17, she, she made that the battle cry for this for politicians. And to a point, she's right. This isn't happening in a rich white suburb or a white city like this isn't happening. in you know, a, a white majority city. But it, and there are lead pipes in Philadelphia. They're in Baltimore. They're in D.C. And it, it took Flint to happen for a national awareness. So maybe 10 years down the line, like we saw with Katrina, we will be 10 years later. And we say something has done better or something has done worse. And hopefully a decade from now, There will be no more lead pipes in Flint, Michigan. There will be less lead pipes in other urban environments in the United States. And we can kind of move forward from this process or it'll take the next massive catastrophe for somebody to do what should have been done the first time.
1: Well, I suppose time only time will tell if when Hillary Clinton says that this wouldn't happen to a rich neighborhood, if she's uttering a battle cry or merely reassuring them. All right. Thanks a lot, Tyler and Arthur. We'll be right back. Hey guys, we'll get back to the program in just a second. I just wanted to take a minute to welcome all of you into my safe space here to thank all of you for tuning into the show and helping us to create an inside the beltway show for beltway outsiders and make it a reality. We love hearing from you. Your feedback has been such a tremendously good, positive influence on us every week. Now you can help other people find out about this show that you're helping to build If you are an iTunes user, please look for our show. Subscribe if you haven't. And use iTunes' widgets to rate our show and to leave us a comment. It will help people like you find this show. And we can keep building what we've got going together. So head on out to iTunes. Subscribe, rate, and say hello to us and your fellow listeners. Thanks so much, guys. And now, here's something else that happened. Okay, we're back. So all across this great land of ours, there are lawmakers working in the States who cling to the belief that women are chattel. And from time (laughs) to time, they take a hammer and tong to reproductive freedoms. It's It's a difficult word to say. So bad I can't pronounce it anymore. (laughs) And so we're going to take a look at some of the state of your reproductive freedoms right now. Joining me now is Zach Carter. Hi. And our lovely guest... Samantha Lachman. Hey, y'all. Whose dulcet tones you've already heard.
5: So, Samantha, what is going on with reproductive freedoms, man? So, this is a really big moment right now. So, if you haven't been paying attention, right now is the time to tune in. Because the Supreme Court last week heard this huge case out of Texas that is going to influence everything. And the whole idea behind the Texas laws were A, the clinics, the abortion clinics have to look like little mini hospitals and pay millions of dollars to upgrade to be mini hospitals in order to provide the procedure and also even provide the abortion pill. So literally you have to be in a, a mini hospital to take the abortion pill they had, to,
1: they had to upgrade to the standard of an ambulatory, ambulatory surgical, center. surgical center or okay. a mini hospital. We'll right, just say yes. that. Yeah, mini hospital. And
5: then B, which is what a piece I have out this week focuses on, is something called admitting privileges, which basically means that the abortion provider in question has to have an agreement with a hospital usually like thirty mile, within 30 miles away to be able to follow the patient there in the exceedingly rare event of a complication that requires a hospital admission and be able to treat that patient at the hospital rather than le- just letting the doctors at the hospital treat the patient.
1: So they had to build a hospital for themselves and have admitting privileges <laughs> Having admitting at privileges, a whole other hospital. I don't have another hospital. This is America. Yes,
5: exactly. And then admitting privileges, I mean, it's really interesting because abortion clinics have obviously sued to block these laws and there's, ongoing litigation in a lot of different states. So Texas, the Supreme Court just heard this Texas case. They're sitting on an appeal from Mississippi where there's only one abortion clinic, and that one abortion clinic left in Mississippi would shut down if the state was able to enforce its admitting privileges law there. In Louisiana, there would be only one abortion clinic. There's four right now, but there would be only one if they were able to enforce their admitting privileges law there, and that's what my piece is specifically about is Louisiana.
4: And so just to be very clear to everybody, the purpose of these rules is to shut down clinics. shut down abortion clinics. Yeah. It is not it is not to in, in, enhance the safety and soundness no. of America's abortion centers. It is to shut them they down. They lie no.
1: and say it's about women's health, but it's not. These I think the colloquial term we call these are trap laws trap targeted trap laws
5: targeted regulations of abortion providers. And you see them all over. there's it's happening in so many different states. But the situation is particularly dire because hospitals just won't give these privileges to the abortion providers because they see that when they have any association with an abortion provider whatsoever, they get harassed and targeted. And threatened by anti, crazy anti-abortion activists, so it's too dangerous for them literally to do this. So the hospitals deny them, even secular hospitals, even teaching universities, like the kinds of places, not religious, just just religious hospitals. So in Louisiana, you you see this this where all these different abortion providers there, there's only six providers in the state, reached out to multiple different hospitals, each of them, and just were totally shut down. So that's what you have is you only have one provider in the whole state of Louisiana in New Orleans who's been able to get the admitting privileges from one hospital.
4: Now I thought that Roe v. Wade. The 1972 Supreme Court decision. 73. 73. Wow. Whoa.
5: Ah. Whoa. Burn.
4: Yeah, that was rough. <laughs> decision that legalized abortion. I thought. I thought that required uh, that uh, that states make abortion uh, accessible. And how, and and what what happens if I live in uh, some rural part of Louisiana and not in New Orleans? isn't that a violation of, of Roe v. Wade?
5: You would think so, Zach, but in the early 90s, there was a really huge... Everyone talks about Roe v. Wade all the time, but there was an equally huge abortion decision in this case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and it was 92, I think. And there, the Supreme Court... Had this, I mean, the the history of this case is really fascinating. But basically, they sort of narrowed the scope of Roe v. Wade and said there are some sorts of restrictions on abortion that we're cool with. That came from Pennsylvania, and they basically were cool with a bunch of different types of restrictions. The only one they weren't okay with was spousal notifications. They said it's not okay to force a woman to have to get notify her and permission from her husband to get an abortion. But other than that, they said they were okay with a whole bunch of other restrictions. There was no such thing as admitting privileges laws at that right. time. So since then, now these clinics have had to go back to the Supreme Court and say, are you OK with this? In Planner versus Casey, they created what's called the undue burden standard. And this is the crux of all this, the most important part. And it said you can't put up these unnecessary medical, med- medically unnecessary obstacles to abortion that that creates an undue burden. And you would think that these admitting privileges laws ambulatory surgical laws all these other things are undue burdens but that's the question is is whether the Supreme Court considers them to be to be undue
4: no it it almost seems to me as if anti-abortion lawmakers are doing things that flagrantly violate the existing Supreme Court precedent just to create a new, legal case which could maybe undermine that precedent with a new case
5: definitely and you don't even have to do it by literally saying like abortion is now illegal you don't have to overturn roe v wade you just have to make it so there are no abortion clinics in these states and that's that's what we're seeing in the south right now
1: i just read um irene Carmone and and, she's so good and shauna kniznick's um notorious rbg yeah book on ruth bader ginsburg it's so good everyone read it yeah it's a really good book um and uh Ginsburg, uh, had specific fears about Roe v. Wade prior to joining the Supreme Court. She, she, she had a, a stated preference for, uh, what she would have preferred to see happen in the courts. Were to erect a foundational sort of like structure for women's rights, yeah, and that Roe v. Wade was sort of always a little bit rickety yeah. as far as the structure in which you house reproduc- uh, reproductive freedom. Th- she looks right.
5: Yeah, she Ginsburg is into like the idea of having to have gone slower yeah. rather than creating this 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 thing that that kind of shocked, I would say, a lot of um, more conservative states. Um and, and force them into a position that they were, you know, obviously immediately gonna try to overturn. She so. also
1: she also in the book uh talks about how she had at one point faith, so beautiful naive faith in the potential for technology to make uh abortion obsolete uh in and of itself. But one of the more interesting things about these particular trap laws is they're forcing these clinics that don't do any kind of abortion procedure other than handing people medical bills. Medication to induce, abortion, yeah. Yeah uh they're they're asking them to be up to code on surgical centers yeah uh do lawmakers not understand how the human body works or is it just they don't care or is it a combination of both things
5: i think it's both things and you also see like they get that what they're doing is forcing the closure of clinics. In Louisiana, there's this anti-abortion group and they were communicating, actually it was a Democrat in Louisiana who sponsored this law and admitting privileges, who said, look at this model, we're basing this on Texas where it's had great success in closing abortion clinics. <laughs> <laughs> Cats so, out of the bag. <laughs> literally, yeah. So so we know that that's the case. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, I mean, abortion is exceedingly safe. It's safer than other outpatient procedures like colonoscopies or liposuctions. It's like, it's like a quarter of a percent of the time there's a complication that requires you to go to the hospital. So it's already, like, we already know it's really safe. We already know that these sorts of laws aren't imposed on other outpatient procedures. Where do know that no one's going to get turned down if their doctor doesn't have admitting privileges? Like they're going to be able to go to the hospital and get treated no matter what. Can you imagine what so. the American
4: medical association would do? I mean, that's, that's a big lobby group. I mean, if, if they suddenly started having, you know, serious, if every doctor had to have admitting privileges. yeah, at for Oslo, other
5: outpatient. procedures. Yeah, I mean, well, they, I mean, they've already flipped out over this, but they would flip out more if it were affecting procedures that men have. So one, one,
1: <laughs> one last question. Um, Right now, the Supreme Court is eight eight because obviously Anthony Scalia is not there anymore. Yeah, earlier you mean this week, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, earlier this week, um, they sort of like sent back uh, to the Fifth Circuit a uh, decision on the Louisiana abortion law uh, because Louisiana, the Louisiana Fifth Circuit. Rather snarkily said, "We don't have any clue what the Supreme Court wants us to do in this order staying the Texas law." Yeah. And the Supreme Court responded by saying, "Well, you the know. hint you should have taken was that we stayed that, and now you need to sit down and shut up." Yeah. But beyond that, there's no real tea leaves to be read in that decision. It was significant only in that the Supreme Court was declaring their primacy over the lower court, courts. Yeah. But what's it likely to what's it likely to happen now that it's that Scalia is no longer in the picture?
5: So. They have a few different options in this huge Texas abortion case. There's 19 clinics in Texas. There would be 10 if the Supreme Court upheld the Fifth Circuit, which is the most anti-abortion circuit court in the country. It's based in New Orleans. It oversees Louisiana and Texas. So they, ca- they have a few options. They can strike down the Fifth Circuit, which would be a victory for the abortion clinics, and 19 abortion clinics would remain open. That's what would happen if Kennedy, Justice Kennedy, sided with the liberals. Right. They can also split 4 four. Kennedy would side with the conservative justices. In that case, the lower circuit would be upheld and nine, at least nine clinics would shut down, like, immediately. Or they could kick it back down to the Fifth Circuit and say, we want more evidence from you about the capacity of the remaining abortion clinics. Like how many abortions would 10 abortion clinics basically be able to perform all the abortions needed in Texas with like over 5 million women in that state of reproductive age? So those are the options they have there. Whatever they do, it has huge ramifications, not just for Texas, but for Louisiana, for Mississippi, for Oklahoma, for Wisconsin. Hasn't been making Priscilla's law. All these other states. So it's like this is the most, most, most major thing, and it's going to happen by the end of June. So we'll see what happens. All
1: right. Time for everyone to resurrect their <laughs> all eyes on Kennedy columns
5: And it's for yet cra- another decision. And it's crazy because in Louisiana, they've seen an uptick already in the number of women seeking abortions in Louisiana from, from Texas. So, like, uh. already— The four (laughs) clinics in Louisiana are treating more patients from out of state who are coming from Texas because Texas has so few abortion clinics. I'm
1: sure they'll pass a law shutting that down right away. You have,
5: it's like reproductive rights refugees. Like, that's literally, that's a thing that we have. Don't let the Texans in.
1: (laughs) Basically, basically, basically. Uh, Rich people always be able to get abortion no matter what laws are passed. That's just life.
5: Yeah. All right. Canada. Um,
1: yeah, Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Canada. All right, Samantha, thank you and your homeland for all they've done for us. Zach Carter, thanks for everything. And we'll be right back. back and by the time you listen to this it may already be selection sunday uh the one of the best best days of the uh, of the year going into one of the best weeks of the year start of the ncaa tournament you fill out brackets opening days there's nothing there's nothing like it you want to take off work watch all these squads you never heard of maybe beat up on teams you have it's like glory and we have zach carter is here I
4: did literally I there's nothing that I like in the world of competitive anything more than watching Virginia basketball. And they're definitely going to be in the tournament this year. But Travis Waldron,
1: yeah, is here to tell us why maybe we should feel guilty
6: about liking the incident. Well, you can't so feel too guilty. We are oh, good. Sometimes Woo. sometimes Thank you just have to set all this aside and enjoy it. But P- Travis the, the first. I mean, I come from a Huge, place. Easy. I come from a place where when I was in elementary school, It was not uncommon for kids to have, like, radios in their pocket so that they could listen to the Kentucky game. (laughs) That that place Travis is from is from Kentucky. Like, you beg, you hope that they weren't going to put Kentucky at, like, 2 o'clock on the first day. (laughs) Like, just give us that nice 7 o'clock game. Right. And the state shuts down. I, well, you know, the office here kind of
4: shuts down, too, because uh, they're pretty lenient here with the uh, basketball policies. So instead of having, like, you know, CNBC or MSNBC on. Oh, you know, yeah. Thursday about, and Friday of it. next week is a, good,
1: is a good day for the government to try to get away with some shit. It's, so,
6: it's, it's great that we have enough TVs to put literally every game on. We can yeah. just ignore Donald Trump. So when I watch my favorite player, who is Malcolm
4: Brogdon for the University of Virginia, maybe maybe London Parentos, um, sh- and I see them just being great. Should I feel like they are being exploited? Probably. And why is you should that
6: th- feel guilty about that? And and why? Well, because they're generating so much money for these schools. In a few years ago, CBS and Turner, Sport, Tur- Turner Broadcasting paid ten point eight billion over f- over fourteen year period to broadcast the NCAA Good tournament.
1: Good fucking Christ! Almost
6: all of the NCAA's revenues come from the NCAA tournament. They don't make a, a ton of revenue. Off of you know college football bowl games or anything like that because that's all managed by a separate organization. The NCAA tournament is where they make their money, and these kids are are driving humongous revenues to their schools. They're driving humongous revenues to the NCAA. They're driving major money to sponsors, corporate sponsors.
1: How does that TV deal compare to other TV deals we've seen in sports? Because we know we, we Travis and I are. It's
6: longer term than most of them, so yeah. the, the top line figure is bigger uh, because most most TV. Rights deals in sports don't go out for 14 years. Wow. Um, I on a per year basis, I'm not off the top but of my head. I'm the, not we're sure. We're talking With three quarters of a million, three quarters of a billion dollars every year. Right. and the thing is, is when you you know when you compare it to other TV rights deals in the NFL or Major League Baseball or anywhere, those guys are getting paid. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> they they get they share in those revenues. The
1: money is trickling down. And
6: you know, people make the argument, well, oh, Malcolm Brogdon is. Getting a free ride to college, well okay, but if you look at college basketball NCAA tournament's a perfect example they're going to play on Thursday and then they're going to turn around and play on Saturday if you win you if you if you end up winning the title you're you're gone for almost a month yeah how good of an education? and that's after a season where you've been traveling all year right yeah you know i i find I always find the education argument hard to tolerate if you're anyone who spent time on a major college campus.
4: I just also think the idea that so you know when I went to UVA I think the um I think the the annual tuition was something like like eleven thousand dollars a year, or something like mm-hmm. that. The idea that someone who generates millions of dollars in revenue for the school should deserves a wage of eleven thousand dollars a year is freaking ridiculous. And you know somebody like Malcolm Brogdon, Timmy. He's a smart guy. Like he's a really sharp guy. The other school he was looking at was Harvard. Like the, the idea that this is this is you know somehow they wouldn't qualify for an education sure. absent their athletics. Well, is it differs. Not true. It differs
6: school to school and player to player. You know, I'm sure Malcolm Brogdon's a great student. That's good. He's devoting himself to his education, and that's good. Other guys, you know, they're not getting the help they need. Look at, you know, I don't want to pick on him. I'm sure you all do. That North Carolina, mm-hmm. the academic scandal there. Yeah. How well were they educating their athletes at at the other places where there's been academic scandals? And and also, you know, this all goes back to the basic point. If you if you go back to when Northwestern players were fighting for union rights, should they should they have a seat at the table Mm -hmm. in in saying, is this a fair deal?
1: I just want to point out, I'm looking right now at the UVA bookstore's website uh, and the they're selling a jersey basketball replica uh, jersey. Uh, for seventy five dollars on the site, it's
6: not Malcolm Brogdon's though.
1: It's number fifteen. It's That's...
6: just some. It's by some miracle of coincidence. Sure, sure, sure. It has the number of the most uh, recognizable the most player. player on the team. Right, right, national right. player of the year candidate. Right. And next year, it probably won't have number fifteen on it. It'll no. just they'll just randomly draw a number out of a hat, and it will be and the wow, number of yeah. that, oh, wait, but, but, that but let me ask you: How much
4: money does Malcolm Brogdon make from those jersey sales? Nothing. Nothing nothing that seems like a scandal
1: <laughs> what if malcolm brogdon wanted what if malcolm brogdon got uh you know uh, a, a tv deal on his own maybe it was like cast in a tv show or something yeah. could he they could can't he claim do that, that money? they
6: can't do that no they so he can't, they can't even sell, his sell their God-giving they can't talents. sell their names and likenesses they can't you know you can't do that that's in the in the letter of intent that they sign in the contract that they sign which to go back to northwestern that was one of their main arguments: is that this is a contractual agreement. We're employees,
1: so and
6: I- as such, should have labor rights. I think they made a compelling case. The National Labor Relations Board decided to punt on it after uh, after a regional director initially approved and, and agreed with them. But it's you know it's it's also it's hard to have this this debate, if you will, because it it always turns back to how will you do it. I, that's not my, that's not anyone's job to figure out except the organization that's currently profiting
1: right, right, right.
6: off of <laughs> off of <laughs> their job underpaid labor, because I am someone who it's not mom and dad's do,
1: job to tell you they're going to make a new Santa Claus. For and, you when and Santa Claus I'll say this.
6: Away. I don't I don't think it's correct to say that these athletes don't get paid. I think what what makes this so ridiculous is that they are getting paid. They are getting compensated. It's not paid yeah. necessarily, but they're being compensated in the form of a scholarship. The question is, is that enough? Is that proper? And are the schools holding up their uh, their end of the agreement when it comes to that scholarship? Are they properly educating them? And then the other question is, well, is that the best way to do it? And should athletes have a say in whether that's the best way to do it? Employees have a say. Are athletes
4: employed? sort of a foundation of uh, of even conservative economics that – That you were allowed to negotiate contracts. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) But not in college sports.
1: So if you're a fan of college basketball, how do you get through it without feeling guilty about it?
6: I mean, I don't know. You you have to. I mean, I think the first step is acknowledging that that this is the way it is. How do you really, you know, how do you how do you address that with any sports league where there's scandals and problems? That's true. How That's do you true. how do you feel good about going to watch Washington's football team when their stadium cost? Oh, you just don't a, a billion you don't. dollars. You don't even call it by or their name, and by their the name, name is racist. <laughs> you know, like it. All of this involves some uh, level of of dissonance, right? It's like,
1: going to get worse in that aspect because there are DC councils already laying the 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 groundwork for a. Huge taxpayer boondoggle stadium uh, back in the city, which will probably enrich Dan Snyder, a man who really needs no further enrichment, <laughs> and cost the city, you right. know, so much tax revenue is ridiculous.
6: But I, i've always been a I've always been an NCAA tournament fan, so I think the best part is the the best way to do it. You recognize it, you 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 know,
1: you try to wish out, the kids well.
6: You call it out, and you hope that these kids get the best version of the bargain that they can get in the current system.
1: Who do you think is going to win the tournament?
6: Well, I have to say Kentucky. Zach? Virginia, of course.
1: <laughs> uh, cool. I'll go with Virginia, too. Say I actually, I actually Rams, think... Uh-huh. I have
4: to be careful every time I, I, I say things. I'm very superstitious about sports. So every time I say, oh, I think Virginia's going to win this game, they lose. I actually, so I always have to say, I don't think they're going to win. So I, I scratch that. I think You it's are literally Kentucky.
1: the Bill Crystal of you, uh, college basketball. <laughs> of Virginia if, you basketball. You want, <laughs> if you want a
6: legitimate <laughs> pick, I think uh, right now I would say that I like Michigan State over everyone else. Yeah,
1: they're quite good. I in- think this
6: is the most talented team that Tom Izzo has brought into a tournament in quite a while.
1: And he's the best tournament coach and he's, in history.
6: You can't bet against him in the tournament. Yep, yep, yep.
1: Alright, well uh, everyone enjoy the <laughs> NCAA tournament and uh, help these kids arrive at some social change that would benefit them and not benefit the plantation owners of College of Sports. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. We are always watched over by our loving angel, Caitlin Boguki. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we are joined by Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Samantha Lockman, Tyler Tynes, Travis Waldron, and Lauren Weber. This podcast was sponsored by Club W, the revolutionary new wine club that brings delicious bottles of wine right to your door. We are also sponsored by MileIQ, the mileage tracker app that's helping millions of Americans make more money. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to So That Happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening. We miss you already.
0: When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance.